I speak to you in the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, instead of really juicy stories about stepfathers and dancing girls this morning, we're going to talk about something quite different, which is about prayer and how prayer affects or shapes our lives, even the prayers we say in worship. You might want to open your bulletin to the collect for the day. It's at the beginning, right after the hymn of praise. So first hymn, collect for purity, second hymn, and then the collect of the day. Receive the prayers of your people who call upon you and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do and also may have the grace and power faithfully to fulfill them. What would you say if the liturgy suddenly got changed and we came in and started saying, the force be with you? Come on, y'all. Let's try that again. The force be with you. See, you knew how to answer that. And then suppose instead of a blessing, I held up my hand and said, live long and prosper. Be cool, huh? Maybe. For many of us, especially those of us who grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and were Star Trek or Star Wars fans in our childhood and young adulthood, and they never seemed to meet. We have one of both in our household. The idea of the Force and the Vulcan benediction, live long and prosper, were powerful shapers of the ideas that we had about the nature of God. The Force is an impersonal energy field and source of light, or darkness if you choose, but one would never pray to it. But if you align yourself with the force and you open your will to it, then your mind and your body will be filled with such great power that you can dance with the powers of darkness with your eyes closed or race spaceships out of swamp by the power of concentration or bend other people to your will. And the Vulcan benediction is kind of a formal summation of American conviction. Everyone should live long and prosper, and no one should stand in their way. If there's anything divine out there, maybe like the Vulcan Council of Elders, then it's their job to make sure that we live long and prosper. No sickness, no poverty, no unhappiness ever. Combine together the force and the Vulcan blessing Reveal what human beings really want from their gods, a God that will help them defeat their enemies and ensure their happiness and well-being. And when we go about inventing our own gods, that's the sort of God we often invent. Now, this isn't a new phenomenon. It's not something peculiar to the modern world. Our cultural push to demystify and to secularize almost everything may reveal it more clearly to us than ever before, but it's not a new thing in the world. You can hear it in the Psalms, for instance. So many of the Psalms beg God to make us happy, restore our fortunes, help us win 
prove us right, defeat our enemies. The difference between the psalmists and modern Americans, though, is that the psalmist never forgets that it is God that they worship. They do not confuse themselves and their desires with God. This morning's selection from Psalm 85 is a good case in point. The psalm proclaims the people's faith. I will listen to what the Lord God is saying, for he is speaking peace to his faithful people and to those who turn their hearts to him. Truly his salvation is very near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. The Lord will indeed grant prosperity, and our land will yield its increase. But all of that, all of that and the re- is made clear in the rest of the psalm, it only happens because the people have returned to righteousness. They've repented of their unfaithfulness, and they've returned to the worship of God. The psalm is both a prayer of repentance and a celebration of the restoration of the relationship with God that results from that repentance. All of which led me to wonder, when we say our prayers, collectively or individually, do we know who we're praying to or what exactly we're praying for? Do we pay attention? For example, when you read the collect with Father Fred this morning, did you pay attention to the words that you were saying as you read them? Really? Do you want to have the grace to know the things you ought to do and the grace and the the power to fulfill them? Who gives that grace and power? All too often, I think, in worship, the prayers that we say together or the prayers that the priest prays on our behalf, they're kind of like Charlie Brown's teacher, you know? Wah, 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 wah. And we don't pay attention. We never look at what those words mean. But the liturgy from beginning to end is a prayer. It's a prayer you and I and Father Fred, everyone here engages in. It's a prayer. What are you saying with your lips and in your heart? Now, the collects for the next several weeks, the collects are these prayers we pray at the beginning of the the worship, are some of the loveliest in the prayer book, and they're some of the most personal. They're also hugely helpful ways to think about and to talk about what it might mean to live like a Christian. And we will be reading them out loud together. I think they have more effect that way. When the priest reads them on behalf of the congregation, it's way too easy to ignore them. And it's my hope that reading them together will help all of us think about the things that we are asking of God in those prayers. It's always, always really important to pay attention to what you say to God in prayer. At the very least, it keeps you from being shocked by God's response. But it's, it's a lot more than that. You see, all prayer is theological because the way we talk to God tells us who we believe God is 
and what God means to us. We're all theologians, some of us more intentionally than others, but even those among us who think that having a conversation about God is probably the most boring thing that they can think of are theologians. Even atheists are theologians because an atheist has to be able to define the God that they do not believe in. But we, who we believe God is and what God means to us is the heart of our theology. And it makes you a theologian whether you think you are or want to be or not. And here's the thing about prayer and your belief about God. If your prayer doesn't match what you say you believe about God, then the disconnect will ultimately undermine your faith. Years ago, I was leading a retreat, and we were talking about the images of God that all of us carry around in our hearts and minds, whether we know it or not. And one of the people on the retreat allowed us how she didn't have an image of God. Now, she was thinking about image very literally like a picture in her mind of who God was. But she didn't have that kind of image. But she imagined God to be a warm purple light that pulsed all around her. And prayer for her amounted to speaking about her wants and her needs into that light. She didn't expect it to respond, and she didn't think that it could. Her God was a lot like the force, only in purple, and she was seeking to be part of it. Now, all of that was fine so far as it went, but she was also an ordained minister charged with the responsibility to teach people to have a relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Her theology, her beliefs about who God is and is not, ultimately undermined her entire ministry. Now, this morning's collect talks to God. It presupposes a personal God who receives our prayers as an offering of our souls and our hearts to him. This God is not the force. This God is the creator of everything that is who became human like us and is someone with whom we can have a relationship. And our relationship with that God and our amazement at his love for us leads us to want to do God's will, expecting that should we want to do it and do what God desires for us, God will give us the grace and the power to do it. Grant that they may know and understand the things they ought to do. Now, I bet there are a lot of folks in here this morning who would be really happy if right now I said, here's the list of things you ought to do. We'd be done, right? Out of here early. If I could just read you a list. Sadly, it doesn't work that way. Everyone's list is their own. And you're going to have to ask God for it. Martin Luther worried a lot about people wanting lists to figure out if they had done what they ought to do. He called it works righteousness. I would call it mechanical Christianity. 
Mechanical Christianity works like this. I go to church once a month or so, and I'm faithful to my spouse, and I take care of my friends and my family, and I give a little money to the church occasionally, so, so I'm good with God. The quality of my relationships with others, the health of my spiritual life, my attentiveness to my faith, all that can sort of slide under the radar because I do those other things, and I've done what is on the list. There are three reasons I think we want lists. Beyond the obvious one, it's a lot easier, right? First, we want certainty. We want to know that we have a checklist that guarantees a right relationship with God. And this whole faith and spiritual life thing then gets really simple. And second, we want to know what the basic requirements are. All of us tend to be like a bunch of undergraduates in their freshman English class. What is it we have to do to get out of this course with a passing grade? And third, we're really pretty sure that if we ask God what we ought to do, it will be something we don't want to do and we're not going to like it even a little bit. But you know, in my experience, God rarely asks things of us like that. God's desires for us are often the deepest desires of our hearts, not the parts of our hearts that want more stuff, but the parts of our hearts that want healed relationships, a release from burdens and pain and, and some kind of rest for our souls the parts of our hearts that want more joy in our lives and want to find ways to be close to others. God's desires align with those things because we were created for those things and they will also bring spiritual wholeness and growth to our lives. So I'm going to take someone who has a hard time looking past the things that are missing and his or her life, you know, they've got a glass that's seven-eighths full, but all they can see is that little bit at the top that's not there. God may ask them to say prayers of thanksgiving and learn to count their blessings. Someone who has a hard time seeing those in need in the midst of all of us may be asked to spend some time working alongside of those people. And someone who wants to understand God more may be called to use their intellect to engage in study because that's the way that God wants to speak to them. My point is this. God works with what you have inside of you. And asking what you ought to do is much less likely to require that you pick your whole life up and turn it upside down than it is to begin to require that you begin sort of like in your own room, renovating it and putting it in order in a way that fits with your deepest longings. What do you really want? Ask God for that. So there's no list for you this morning. Going to church? building up and being faithful to our most intimate relationships and giving our money, which is like giving of ourselves. Those things are all important. And I don't think God 
is going to take any of those things off of your list because each one of them leads to growth and wholeness. But as for the rest of what's on your list, those are things that God and maybe a good spiritual director can help you find. And here's the last thing about praying this collect or any of the ones that follow in the week to come. If we assume that we are going to receive something from someone, it implies that that someone has either offered or given the gift. In the collect, we offer our prayers to what, for what Christ has already promised us, the grace and the power to do what is necessary, honorable, and true. A prayer like this one is a thank you in advance for having received that gift. That means we aren't going to God with a holy shopping list. We're going to God with our lives. And that, after all, is what picking up your cross and following Christ actually means. It means we give our lives to God and we are in return empowered to do what is necessary, honorable, true, and sometimes even what is glorious. That is why Christ can say to us, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, because picking up our cross or taking up Christ's yoke will lead us to something greater and more glorious than we have ever imagined. Your cross is to give your life up. In the late 50s, the Christian mystic and teacher Thomas Merton wrote a prayer that reads as though it was written after he had prayed this collect. And it offers a great answer to that question, how do I know what I ought to do? In his prayer, Martin says that he really doesn't have any idea what he was doing or who he is or where he's going. He doesn't even know if he's really following God's will for him. Now, he was a monk, so, you know, if he can say that, there's hope for us, right? And he says, even though the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so, I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I do. There's a certain reassurance in that prayer, and I think it's helpful for us to remember it. When you pray a prayer like the collect we read this morning, it is not so important to God that you get it all right. This is not some gigantic quest, test filled with trick questions. What is important to God is that you want to get it right and that you want to know what you ought to do, and that you try. And if you start there, oh, if you start there, you will be amazed at what God can do with you.